Why don't we pray and we can jump into things? We're going to do something a little different today. We're not going to be looking at the confession. We're going to instead spend a little time in a book I'm working on. I want to share with you some things from it and um, maybe even get to something that I wrote in response to an article in the Wall Street Journal, which I submitted to another publication as a kind of a rejoinder. But anyway, we'll, we'll see how fast things go here. Father, thank you for uh, what appears to be another beautiful day. We're grateful for an opportunity to study your word too. And uh, we pray that you'll bless the things that are planned for the day, baptisms and new members. It's going to be a fun time. We're grateful for how you've grown the church. Now uh, we pray for growth spiritually for us now. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so some of you know that I've written a number of books. I'm working on a book right now uh, that I kind of go back and forth on the title. You know, you get working titles, and then even after you have your own sort of favorite title, you're not actually in charge of what a book finally is called. Uh, you know, the publisher has a final say. So, uh, but the working title has been um, How to Defeat the New Communism in Your Spare Time. I've been thinking about calling it How, Does, How to Defeat... Uh, totalitarianism 2.0 because there are some important distinctions about what's happening in the world today and what we normally you know, call communism. Uh, and the first half of the book uh, and the second half of the book are addressing different matters. So the first, really kind of the, the, the theme of the, of the book can be summed up by, by the, from this passage in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. Of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. So the first half of the book is an attempt to understand the times, and the second half of the book is an attempt to outline what could be done in light of that. Um, the first half of the book, in terms of what's going on as an analysis, kind of a cultural analysis, using scripture to understand what's going on. So uh, I'll, let me just kind of walk you through. There's seven chapters in the first half of the book. First chapter is entitled, Less Armageddon and More Antichrist, Whatever Became of Common Sense. Actually, that, that phrase, uh, we need to fear Armageddon less and Antichrist more, was a statement that Peter Thiel, of all people, uh, said. Peter Thiel, the guy you know, behind PayPal and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. So he's an interesting character. Real mixed bag. <laughs> but anyway, so the second chapter is entitled, What the New Communists Know and What They Don't. And that chapter is, a, is looking at uh, their understanding of knowledge. Uh, the third chapter is Machines Made of Meat, What They Think of Us and the Cosmos at Large is Just a Vast Machine. That term, Machines Made of Meat, is actually something uh, that was stated by a... Uh, uh, an important scientist and philosopher at MIT, so the term is not something I came up with. So just so you know, the people at MIT, or at least some of them, or definitely one of them, thinks of you as a machine made of meat. Happy thought. <laughs> then uh, this phrase that you've heard before, or maybe you haven't, you will own nothing and you will be happy. Uh, that's what our overlords have in store for us. <laughs> And then the chapter I'm going to read from today is one I've been working on. It's entitled The War of the Words. Um, and then what follows that is PSYOPs, chapter, chapter 6. And the last chapter in this section is The Inner Ring. And uh, The Inner Ring, you know, each chapter has a kind of 
a quote that goes with it. This one's from Jacques Ellul, who's a really significant French Reformed theologian and uh, social uh, theorist who lots of folks uh, in Europe know about, but mo many folks here are unfamiliar with. And his statement is, the elites you will have with you always. So it's an important thing to keep in mind. We really will always have elites. So the question is, is what kind do we want? It's not whether or not we have them. I think sometimes, particularly people with a libertarian streak, have this illusion that we can have a world without them. It's just not going to happen. You always have them. The question is, is what kind do you want? So anyway, um, so chapter 5, The War of the Words, I want to get into uh, the nature of signs and what they signify and so forth. Because it's really important in this whole matter. So let me go ahead and just read uh, to you from it. Well, before I do that, let me take you back to a couple of scriptures that I'm going to be uh, drawing on pretty, pretty heavily in this passage or this chapter. Uh, they're in Genesis uh, chapter 2 and chapter 11. So chapter 2, actually chapters 2 and 3. So in chapter 2, um, you know, we have... This statement, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper for, uh, fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to uh, the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man." Then in chapter 3, after the curse, we have this statement. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Okay, so we see some naming here. We get to Genesis chapter uh, 11. There's a famous episode there that uh, I'm sure you all remember, beginning at verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore the name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Okay, so those are the 
Those are the scriptures I'm drawing on, and you might wonder, what in the world does this have to do with totalitarianism? A whole lot. So let's get into it a little bit. So what's in a name? According to the people fighting over them, quite a lot. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of people fighting over pronouns and things like that. There's a lot that people uh, think uh, these things uh, kind of uh, sort of uh, imply or this, the, I should put it maybe the, there's more significance to these things. There's an interesting way to put it, signify, significance. Scripture doesn't spell it all out, but we are given valuable information about what names are for, and the place to begin is with the first human words. Those words were not really the first words, but according to, uh, to materialists, our words don't actually have any basis in the nature of things. Consequently, when we speak, we say more about ourselves than about anything else. And at a superficial level, the first human words recorded in the Bible seem to confirm this. But if you read a little further, you can see that something else is at work. According to the story, the Lord brought animals to Adam to see what he would call them. And we're told that whatever he called an animal, that was its name. The story seems almost childish until you consider the implications. In the background is the command to take dominion. And depending on how you understand uh, how you understand that, things can go wildly different in wildly different directions. Since materialists don't see a transcendent origin to anything, that means we must supply the meaning. So when it comes to naming, we impose meaning onto things that are essentially meaningless. Naming, then, can't help uh, serving our needs and purposes, and words become tools for that. When it comes to politics, words can be used to control people just like they're used to control anything else. Fortunately, many materialists do not follow the logic of materialism lockstep to totalitarianism, but that doesn't mean materialism is irrelevant. It just means that there's more to materialists than materialism. That's the thing to always keep in mind. <laughs> you know, a materialist might think the universe is just matter, but we as believers know that even materialists are more than matter. You see what I'm getting at? Speaking of Adam, though, what was he talking about when he used names? According to the backstory in Genesis, the world itself had been spoken into existence. And that meant the animals already had been spoken for. Perhaps it's fair to say that they already had been named. In that case, what does it mean? Do Adam's names overwrite what God had already said when he spoke them into existence? Or are Adam's names in some a sense based on what he sees in them. Hopefully you can see that a great deal depends on how that question is answered. It's the difference between dominion and domination. Attempts to define language from a materialist point okay, now I'm back. <laughs> uh, attempts to define language from a materialist point of view in inevitably run into problems. That's because things must be quantified in order to be known. But the most important things in life can't be quantified, except per perhaps in some tabulation of preferences. But that misses the point spectacularly. And it is just as well since truly valuable things are not subject to this sort of calculus. We all have an intuitive sense of value. And it isn't just subjective. For example, when we say that a child is valuable, we're saying something uh, that only the most pig-headed materialist could deny. 
Still, you can't measure a child's value unless you're talking about market value, but again, that misses the point because uh, everyone knows that the child is valuable outside the market. It is a matter of quality as opposed to quantity. And getting back to the subject at hand, we can see an assessment of quality when Adam names his wife. First, he recognizes something of himself in her. She is bone of his bones, and yet she is someone else. She had his start in his body, but now she's looking back at him. This is why he called her woman, a name which denotes something common yet different. Later, when the difference is elaborated upon, he names her Eve because she has a purpose that is hers alone. She is the mother of all the living. We can see that uh, the names Adam gives his wife are not impositions so much as recognitions. It is because God spoke first that Adam can speak truthfully. His names are amens, agreeing with what is so. And yet, they do add something. The ability to acknowledge and name the meaning of things means that we can communicate objective value. But our words also elaborate upon it and can even perfect it. Adam's words are masterful, but it is a mastery that begins with humility and gratitude. Ironically, the conviction that human beings don't have the first word is the basis for democracy. Uh, the world comes pre-ordered, not according to our desires, but by the wisdom of its creator. Because his wisdom orders things, no one has the right to impress an order that contradicts it. One of the implications of this is our rights, as we see in the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. People don't necessarily agree at any given time about what's in the best interest of a democracy, but that's why they debate with each other. They shouldn't do it merely to defeat their opponents, though. They should do it in order to find a common interest. And it is through words that a democracy makes a common life possible. Yes, that's idealistic, but hopefully it's not quixotic. We're informed that democracy has existed in various cultures around the world. It shouldn't surprise us since we share a common human nature. Even so, it was the Greeks who gave us the philosophical basis for democracy, and that was developed most famously in Athens. It is an underappreciated fact that the Greek doctrine of the Lagos and the biblical record of the world being spoken into existence essentially tell us the same thing. The Apostle John even declared that the Son of God is the Lagos, the one through whom all things came into being. But the fathers of the church did say that Lagos isn't a thing. Instead, the Lagos is a person. Nevertheless, it was the Greeks who helped them see the connection between words and reasons. It's the reason why Lagos can be translated as either word or reason. So our ability to understand and our ability to speak are inextricably connected. And it is materialism's rejection of the Lagos that undermines America's constitutional order. I'd like to get into that a little more later. Very often when we read the Bible, we stunningly miss the point. Such tends to be the case with Babel and its tower in Genesis 11. It might have to do with children's Bibles. Those colorful but 
bodlerized treatments of biblical stories. There, Babel is used to explain why people in France talk so funny. There's much more going on, of course, but you can only see that if you can accept this simple premise. The Bible is more intelligent and subtle than it's often given credit for being. Here's how the story goes. Once upon a time, we all had a common language and and a common life. It was a politically and culturally unified world. But to what end did we direct our unity? To two things, making a name for ourselves and holding it all together. Admittedly, admittedly, this is uh, deeply appealing. Sometimes the dream is justified in this way. If we could just stop fighting and work together, think of what we might accomplish. Surprisingly, according to the story, the Lord God agrees when he looks in on what they're up to. He says, behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose will be impossible for them. But rather than congratulate them on their achievements, he confuses their speech. And that makes, uh, I'm sorry, what we make of that says something about us. If we write it off as jealousy, as God trying to keep us from having what he has, We not only demonstrate lack of faith, we reveal that we actually believe that reality, including love and life itself, has another source than the Creator. We might even suspect that we're not creatures at all, that our lives and even the world itself didn't come into being at His command. But if we believe that the whole Babel project is profoundly misguided, then perhaps we'll see God's God's judgment in a different light. It was severe mercy. Think about it this way. If God truly is the source of everything, then attempts to fashion a reality without Him are only going to end in death. In that case, confusing our speech makes room for redemption and eternal life. What's generally overlooked in the Babel story is the role of technology in the stated objectives of the builders. They make bricks as opposed to stone, And a tower not only lifts those who climb it, it helps them to look down on those below. But when a wrench gets thrown into the machinery of words, things break down. First, unity breaks down, and then the project comes to a stop. But for the technologies to have developed in the first place, language had to be repurposed. Rather than naming things as they are, or as they should be, words were used to plan a new world, one with a different purpose than the God-given one. I think this is the way modern scientific people use names. We use words to control the world, and what follows isn't control. Instead, words stop working. Usually the curse is assumed to have worked immediately, even magically, but perhaps it worked subtly, even inevitably. Sins contain the seeds of their own destruction. When language is just another way to get what you want, some people start to feel uneasy. They tend to wonder if the person who is doing the talking is taking advantage of them. Questions such as, who's in charge? And, is that fair? Get asked. Then disagreements inevitably arise. So perhaps the question Babel answers isn't, why do the French talk so funny? Maybe it's, why do Democrats say the things that they do? or Republicans, or Communists, 
or blacks or Native Americans or whomever you disagree with. My suspicion, if my suspicion is correct, language breaks down when trust breaks down. We live under a curse. So that's the situation we find ourselves in, and I, that's only about halfway through the chapter, about a third into the chapter, and I'll talk about some other things. But I wanted to stop and think with you a little bit about that, because what we have in our world today is a war of words, right? Everybody arguing about words. And at one level, you know, you, you think, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. We all know that words are not just empty things, that they have implications and things follow. So, uh, how do, should we think about these things? Anyway, uh, just kind of lay that out there for you, and I wonder if you have any uh, thoughts or comments or want to challenge me on anything. Or... Yeah, Steve, not so much a challenge. Uh, looking at uh, something that Rosa Stokkuji said, and that is that uh, when uh, we stop talking, we stop communicating, and we have war. And when we uh, are able to, to speak with each other, then we can have peace. And well, that, that's good, but what's the language talk, you know, based on? I, I hear people talking every day on social media, and they're not communicating at all, or at least they're, not, they're, they're fighting. So speech, in other words, speech doesn't necessarily mean that you're actually getting anywhere to, you know, sort of a common. So communication and communion... Think about those two words. Communication should facilitate communion, but that's not actually what's happening. So, I, you know, there are... You, okay, well, this, this gentleman, his, his, his supposition is that he's referring to um, a Christian communication. Okay. And, that, and, that, and that's the route that he thinks that we should all go to in order to have peace. So then, then of course, as a Christian, so let's think about this from, you know, one of the things I tried to get at so as a Christian, what are, we, what are we doing? What do we think is actually going on? So think about it this way. What did Adam base his words on? What he saw. And what he did. The creation. But, and, and the fact that he was God, or that he was made by God, and his wife. But I'm getting, what I'm getting at is he saw something in the things that were made. In other words, the names were based... I, Maybe I should go back and reread. Because <laughs> you know, he didn't, it wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't like, I'll just call this thing Bunka Bunka or whatever. In other words, he looks at his wife and he gives her a name, woman, for a reason. He sees something. Why does he see? He is exercising the R word, reason. In other words, he's actually reasoning. He's actually, now, the reason is not arbitrary. This is one of the things I can't stand about some people when they talk about arbitrary reason. Reason is not arbitrary. If you think it is, you're actually not reasoning. Reason is based on what? Lagos. Lagos, in other words, God's wisdom. Now, in sin we can calculate and try to do things that are out of accord with reason, but what's that called in Scripture? Foolishness. It's not reason. It's foolishness. Now, one of the ways that sometimes people will use or describe this is right reason versus, you know, so right reason is reason that's sound. Now, how does reason get twisted? Well, because we confuse our own desires or agenda or whatever, 
and we can be we can be clever. We can kind of make things work. I mean, the, the people at Babel were very clever. But what ended up happening? Things broke down. So my, I guess one of the things I'm trying to get across is, is I think the world has been made in such a way that it will break down. So what we're experiencing right now is a breakdown. Things are breaking down. Why are things breaking down? Because nobody trusts anybody. Women don't trust men. Men don't trust women. Citizens don't trust each other. Nobody trusts anybody. No one trusts the experts even anymore. <laughs> you know, the experts say, we've got your best interests at heart, and everybody's like, yeah, right. What about this? What about that? What about this, right? So we don't even hear what they say anymore. We don't take their words to heart. Other, th other thoughts? Yeah. So Adam and many people, we create words and give names based on what we see. What do, what do we do with today when we have definition changes, where we have words that were created for a reason, but then come along people and they want to change what the word actually means? And we have multiple definitions for the same word now. Why did we arrive there? And is it fully malice to arrive there? Or is there some other sort of reasoning that's flawed that brought people to the point where they change the definitions for words? Well, we're under curse. That's the very nature of it. So when a word loses its stability, here's an, maybe I should bring this up. Confucius. Confucius said, uh, uh, renewal begins with the restoration of names. So in other words, even in China, this was a problem. <laughs> you know, when, when, when language is used in ways that uh, sort of uh, are intended to further a particular person's interests, maybe at the expense of another person. That's where we see the, the well, we think about what, what, where we see the, the first perversion of language occur. The temptation. Yeah, the temptation. So doubt is introduced to what God has said. In other words, we start questioning that. So as soon as we, so what the, what the serpent who is known as the accuser. It's one of the interesting things, you know, that was like his, his nickname, <laughs> the accuser. Uh, what, what he does is he, he, he says, that's not really what God's after. Remember what he proposes? He just wants to keep you in your place. And that's what everybody thinks. You know, the reason why the words are being used in the way they are is to try to keep, you know, some particular groups or persons or what interests protected. Now, there's enough truth in that. <laughs> we see it all the time that, you know, it's easy to believe. Yeah, yeah, that's what's really going on. And so you end up with extremely cynical people who can't even trust their common sense anymore. And think about, think about what's going on. It's an assault on common sense. Basically, what we're told today is that the authorities, um, well, it gets us back to O'Brien in 1984. Remember O'Brien was the torturer? Winston is being tortured. Remember the question that's being asked? Two and two is? No, five. And Winston initially insists that it's four. In other words, thereby demonstrating that he possesses reason. What's that? Well, that's great. But the thing is, is what we're getting at is the, that the state in 1984 is insisting that it's the only source of truth. What about her question? Which one about? Well, why is the word gay now not referring to somebody who's happy? 
Well, I think that, again, getting back to the curse, <laughs> but getting back to the curse, you've got the reappropriation of words, and that's why I just noted that when renewal begins is when you return to the, the meanings. Yep. So, we have lost, the reason why we're in such conflict is because we have lost a common, the common ground of Jesus Christ and being founded on godly principles. Are we always going to have this type of conflict because we don't? It, short answer is yes, we will always have this conflict until the golden age, the Perusia. So what, is, what happens at Pentecost? Have you ever thought about how, how Pentecost is, is a uh, kind of a counterpoint or a foil to Babel? So you have, you're on a different mountain, you're in a different place, you know, you, you're in, but what you have is the reverse of the Babel curse. When the Spirit you know, makes it possible for all these people from different parts of the world who speak different languages to understand each other. Also, sorry. <laughs> also, I would go deeper to say that this was the accuser's plan from the beginning of time, and we're playing out the plan because he wants to confuse and he wants to isolate and he wants to, and that's the, the, the minds that have thought up things like systemic racism and, you know, I was born this way. This is their plan from the very beginning. Oh, yeah, I mean, and one of the things I'm trying to do with the book is sort of describe how it all kind of... <laughs> so, you know, it won't be... You know, the challenge... There, by the way, there are a lot of great books that get into this stuff. So my, my task is, 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 is the task of kind of a popularizer who's trying to summarize and put it into, um, you know, put it in ways that are easy to grasp. So when it comes to the subject of totalitarianism, they're just, the literature is voluminous. I mean, and it's really good. Everything from Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism to Eric Coffers, The True Believer, you know, just got tons and tons. You got 1984, you got Brave New World, where all of this stuff is being explored and thought through. Um, you know, when you think about, say, uh, the nature of how totalitarianism works, works its way sort of out, one of the things is that we got kind of fixated on the 1984 model and lost sight of the Brave New World model. And we are actually much more subject to the Brave New World model. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so in the beginning was the word. So it seems that when there's an attack on God's orders, uh, the first thing that has to happen is an attack on the word because in the beginning was the word. Right. And it's really kind of interesting how when God dispersed, the languages were pure in the sense that the words that they were saying were the actual real meanings. And now these people are actually trying to invoke a sort of their own curse upon people, although it would be a slow motion curse of trying to do what God did initially, but in a perverted sense. It's very interesting. Yeah, so when you think about you know what was going on in Babel, is they were departing from... They were already uh, reinventing language or repurposing language, so um, it's a story that gets gets us into kind of the roots of um, you know a lot of different problems, and that's why my point is is that we don't we don't uh, 
look to stories like that to really understand our world the way we should. You know, there's a lot going on in the Babel story that helps you understand what's going on today. Anyway, um, yep. Where did you get the idea that God named the animals and that Adam just named them because Adam? Chapter one. Cut off that. Yeah, but where? Well, let's go. <laughs> Chapter one of Genesis. Well, the thesis is that God named the animals and then Adam said, "Oh man." I was kind of curious as to how he why did he come up with that? Yeah, well, I try, that's what I try to demonstrate because when he sees a woman, in other words, when we, when we first have the, the episode with him naming the animals, we're not given any insight into his method. Okay, so you're, you're saying it's based upon when he named Eve. Well, he names Eve, but he also calls her woman. Right, but, but that so process he, that he engaged in naming the woman is what he... I think it's a fair inference. So, in other words, either he goes into a completely new mode when he gets to the woman, or he was doing that all along. Could it be like your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the world, but your mom, the name she gave you, is yeah. not the name that's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, right. which is a different name. But yeah, I think, yeah, at that point, we're looking at the end of the story. So, at the beginning of the story, what do we have? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The spirit, or the, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. So God is speaking, and with, those, with the speech, there is, a, there is a structure that follows. There is an uh, an ability to identify things, he calls, right? Creates and then calls. So God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day and the darkness he called night. Now, when we get down to, you know, further into this, uh, you know, we get to, you know, days four, five, and six. Uh, and there we have, you know, the creatures that are created. We don't, it would be a real long book, chapter, if we, we got every single name. <laughs> in other words, you know, I'm getting, so, you know, it's, just, it's not just like animals, right? I mean, we, if we look at the different animals, we can see something that characterizes them, right? So, in, in other words, when we exercise a reason, we're thinking God's thoughts after him. There's a sense in which we're recognizing. By the way, this is, I didn't invent any of this. This is classical Christian theology related to creation. So this, this is just stuff that I've learned over the years. <laughs> I didn't make any of it up. Uh, you can go back to the early church fathers and see them talking about all of this. So they talk about the lagos and the lagoi. The lagos and the lagoi. The word and the words. The words, the lagoi, that's plural, everything has its word. That's the implication. And it's through the word that all things came into being, for whom all things were made. Right? Yeah. Does the word logic? Yep, the yeah. word logic comes from logos. How, it's amazing how it all hangs together, doesn't it? <laughs> yep. So my other question is, um, it makes sense what you just, how you answered my last question. Yeah. Uh, the Babylonians, I'm going to call them that. <laughs> Battle, yeah, they're having a little fun with words there. 
they were speaking the same language. Yes. In the story, or are we talking about the empire that comes later? Before, before, the, before God's thing, let's go down and, and confuse their languages. Yeah, so their language is being confused, or it is confused. So, like I said, I, I said, you know, normally we think about this as just kind of, a, you know, it happens instantly. What I'm proposing is perhaps, I'm not saying it's, I'm saying, saying conclusively, but I'm saying perhaps it's just kind of the way the, the world kind of works and the curse is kind of built into the fabric of things. So it's not as though the curse is something that happened a long time ago and we don't have to worry about it anymore. We're still under it. So, in fact, we're seeing the effects of the curse, of the Babel curse, right now in our culture and the pronoun debate. But what was the problem with these Babylonians and God's purview is, what is it that, that is disturbing, should be disturbing to us as it was to God? And then was it the pride or was it... Was one, of, one of the things I was trying to get at is that it was a severe mercy. So what they're actually doing is they're killing themselves. If God is the source of life and love and everything good, and we say we don't want you, we want to make our own thing, we cut ourselves off from the source of life and love and everything good. So it's not as though God is like, oh, wow, I'm, I feel so threatened today. Look at these. <laughs> i got to make sure they don't, you know, take my authority away. <laughs> you know, it's not that. It's, it's, now, we like to pretend it's that. That's the thing that was the lie that the serpent proposed, right? So, uh, and this, this is, by the way, this whole way of thinking is nothing new. You read Sam Harris, you, you read Richard Dawkins, you read Philip Pullman. This is the way they think, that God is not our creator. That if there even is something that we've been calling God, it's not our creator. It's just a bigger thing. So, in fact, if you read, familiar with Philip Pullman's uh, His Dark Materials uh, fantasy series, it was, it was turned into some movies a few years back. I'm glad you don't, but anyway, he was an atheist. He's kind of like the anti-C.S. Lewis, and that's exactly the argument that he advances through the story, is that God uh, just happened to be on the scene before we showed up, and he's kind of pushed us around and made us his slaves. That's... That's the modern understanding. So the theory of severe mercy is, can be found throughout the whole scriptures, perhaps even. Yeah. Um, that God is entering into judgment, and yet at the same time be merciful to humanity, unless we destroy ourselves. Yeah, I think that's that's the heart of judgment. So it's not as though um, now you know there's two faces to it, depending on which side you're you know kind of thinking or you know looking at it from. Uh, yes, there is wrath, but at the same time, there's also, um, like any father, you know, who's saying, you know what, if you keep this up, Junior, you're really going to be sorry. I'm going to intervene, and I'm kind of upset right now, because <laughs> I told you not to do that, but you insist on doing it. So I remember my father, when I was, when I was a little kid, they were, they, we lived right next to the University of Buffalo, and uh, they were always... Uh, these hippies playing football in the street in front of our house. We had hippies who lived with us. This was the 60s. So I remember sitting on the curb into watching those guys. And I remember one day uh, they asked me to come out and play. I was like four, maybe five years old. And one of them, you know, kicked the football 
And it just seemed like it went into the stratosphere because I'm just this little guy. And I caught it. <laughs> and they just were, you know, mocking one of their friends who apparently couldn't do that sort of thing. <laughs> but afterwards, my father said, I don't want you to be in the street anymore. And what I do the next day? <laughs> and I remember my father coming to the front porch and looking at me and saying, come on, come over, come over here, son. <laughs> I knew it was coming. <laughs> and it was. I got spanked. Uh, but it, what was that about? Was it just that he doesn't want me to become a great football player? <laughs> <laughs> just say you would have probably. <laughs> it wasn't for your dad. <laughs> That's right. It was scarred football. <laughs> But anyway, but when we when we think about these things, uh, I think that many people, when they when they read that story, they really do think that God is the party pooper. You know, He's trying to keep us from what we can do. He's trying to keep us from, you know, achieving things and that kind of stuff. And, and that why is that? Because we don't believe that He's good. You know something? I think the other way. I think that God helps us. Oh, I agree. I agree. He helps us. But and. At the same time, we do things wrong, right, Molly? And when we do things wrong, what happens? You get spanked. There you go. <laughs> right. Okay. We're on the same page. <laughs> anyway, um, so that uh, is what I've been kind of working on. Um, I don't know if if, uh, if you want to spend more time with that. I, I did want to briefly read something um, that I wrote for. So I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal Weekend Edition, which always gives me plenty of things to think about. And uh, there was a, an article uh, in last week's Weekend Edition about church. And I, I, was, like, I was like, wow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that. And the more I read it, the more I was like, I got to talk to this. <laughs> I got to write something to respond to this. So it's entitled, Houses of Worship Shouldn't Divide Over or shouldn't mirror the class divide. So thinking about division here, you know, and language and stuff like that. Anyway, so it's not a terribly long article, but I'll, I'll just read a couple of snippets to give you a sense of what's going on with this. And then I'll read my response, which hopefully is going to be published this week in uh, a magazine. I haven't gotten the final word on that. So uh, this is by a fellow named Ryan Burge. <clears throat> He's a pastor. Uh, and he's an associate professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University. Let's read the number of books. Um, One of the most striking and consequential consequential shifts in U.S. society over the last five decades is the increasing share of Americans who have abandoned religion. In 1972, just 5% of Americans reported that they had no religious affiliation, According to the uh, General Social Survey, in 2001, that number had skyrocketed to nearly 30%. So um, he goes on to talk a little more about that. Then he says, this shift has not been uniform across American society. Survey data from the last decade shows that the people most likely to be found at religious services are the well-educated and well-to-do In 2022, 30% of people with a college degree and an income of at least $60,000 a year attended services weekly. Among those uh, with a high school diploma making less than $30,000, only 20% did. Kind of interesting. So uh, he goes on to talk about 
uh, some changes in our society. Um, when, uh, and then he, he infers that this uh, set of developments is a problem for different reasons. Um, says, uh, as American religion has, is increasingly dominated by educated middle-class worshipers, the likelihood that a person facing financial struggles will show up for services uh, is growing smaller by the year. Being economically and educatedly, uh, educationally stratified means that houses of worship are becoming more politically homogenous as well. If someone walked into an average Protestant or Catholic church in the 1980s, they were just as likely to sit next to a Democrat as a Republican. That's no longer the case. In almost all, all majority white Protestant churches, political conservatives dramatically outnumber those who are on the left. Uh, in 1978, 50% of white weekly churchgoers were Democrats, and 40% were Republicans. Today, 60% identify as Republicans and just 25% as Democrats. Then he goes on to talk about some of the things that kind of follow from this and why, uh, you know, churches should make uh, a stronger kind of uh, make a stronger push to get people who are. Um, politically on the left into church. So anyway, that's the article. So I, I had some things to say about it. So I'll give you my, my take. So this is my take. The weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal, August 19th, 20th, published an article entitled Houses of Worship Shouldn't Mirror the Class Divide by Ryan Burge, a Baptist pastor and associate professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University. He begins by noting two trends, one troubling and the other not. First, more people than ever in the United States declare that they have no religious affiliation. We're informed that only 5% of Americans in 1972 said so. But by 2020, that percentage had skyrocketed to 30%. At the same time, those who do attend church weekly are overwhelmingly better off financially and enjoy higher levels of education than those who don't. Puzzlingly, Pastor Burge is just as troubled by the second trend as the first. But considering it has been conventional wisdom among flamboyant atheists that religion is only found in the company of ignorance and poverty, this struck me as something to celebrate. As a fellow pastor with an academic background, I taught philosophy for a decade at a college on the South Shore of Boston, it seemed to me that this vindication of religion should be something clergy pass along to vocational counselors in high schools and colleges. At least there should be a memo with the heading, Want to succeed in life? Find yourself a church, preferably a conservative one. But this does not occur to Pastor Burge. Instead, he takes these data to imply that church-going people, particularly white, conservative church-going people, are somehow complicit in the decline in church attendance. He notes that in 1978, 50% of white ch uh, weekly churchgoers were Democrats and 40% were Republicans. Today, 60% identify as Republicans and just 25% as Democrats. The way he frames the matter begs the question. Left unnoted is the fact that, generally speaking, mainline churches have trended left for those same 50 years. This isn't a secret. When I visit Boston and saunter around the public garden or even when I'm on the town green in most New England towns, my eyes are assaulted by plaid, pride flags and Black Lives Matter lawn signs at every white clapboard congregational church. It seems to this observer that, the great, that a great many churches are trying to reach those disaffected Democrats. But according to Pastor Burge's own research, they're failing. Speaking of Democrats, I remember them quite well. 
I sat right next to them in the little blue-collar evangelical church in Western Pennsylvania that I attended in 1978. They were family-oriented in the old-fashioned way, and they were patriotic. What made them Democrats was their union cards, but they identified primarily with Norman Rockwell's America. What changed wasn't the churches, in most cases anyway. What changed was the Democratic Party. I'm old enough to recall Ronald Reagan's quip, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. And that's true for nearly all the folks I knew. In fact, most of them voted for Reagan. And it was only a short step from that to leaving the Democratic Party altogether. The shift, began, uh, the shift in attendance burged notes, in part, can be explained by a change in political affiliation. It wasn't that Democrats left churches so much as Democrats left the Democratic Party. The concern that Pastor Burge expresses for working class and low income people is one I share. I lived in public housing as a kid and spent time in foster care. And it was that little blue collar church I mentioned earlier and the blue collar Democrats who attended it that made all the difference for me. But those folks had more than church going for them, as important as that was. They also had healthy, traditional families with three or more kids, headed by fathers who could support them with his income alone. They didn't have much by some standards, a modest home, a car, perhaps a truck, but they had self-respect and very often lots of extended family living nearby. Those families are harder to find today. Drug addiction and family breakdown have decimated the working class. Let's put the spotlight where it belongs. And it's not lack of jobs that hurts these people, although insufficient pay is maybe something we should consider. The jobs are there, but the people who could fill those jobs are either unwilling to or not qualified. And the qualifi qualification I'm thinking of is sobriety. A friend's son just graduated from trade school. A local defense contractor is so desperate for workers, it hired his entire class, all 16 of them. But of those 16 young men, only one passed the drug test. My friend's son, from the church-going intact family. I'm pleased to say that I have a good number of working-class men in, the ch in my churches over the years. I've had a good number. But I I've also had corporate executives, wealthy entrepreneurs, and college professors. Perhaps it has something to do with me. I enjoy ministering to them all, in part because I can relate pretty well to all of them. I've been a, framer, a framing carpenter, a building contractor, a real estate investor, an author, a college professor, and of course, a pastor. But I don't think you must have blue-collar experience in order to reach working-class people, though it helps. While I'm all for churches doing what they can to reach people, what we need more broadly is cultural renewal. And churches can prophetically call for that. It's one of the ways they have served their communities historically. For the last 50 years, America has focused on self-expression at the expense of just about everything else. And blue-collar America has paid a price. Cultural elites on the left might parade fashionable beliefs, but very often they fail to practice what they preach. It's evident in their tendency to wait for marriage to have kids, for example. And even when it comes to substance abuse, they practice remarkable brinksmanship, principally because education and money give you a wide margin for error. Working class people have no margin for error. They live perpetually on the brink. 
And this is precisely why elites of every political persuasion should preach the virtues of self-control. What working class America needs more than farmers markets on church lawns or AA groups in church basements is a nationwide recovery of old fashioned virtues such as thrift, timeliness, honesty, family loyalty, patriotism, and above all, Christian piety, including church attendance. If elites can learn, learn to preach those unfashionable beliefs and live them, we will see a trickle-down effect that will morally and even financially raise all boats. So anyway, that's my, my little... And it, thank you, thank you. <laughs> that's one. <laughs> thank you, thank you. But we'll see if it gets published and uh, how it all kind of plays out. Because Pastor Burge and I are actually following each other on Twitter. So when my, my thing comes up, or what used to be called Twitter... And it's sort of like, remember Prince when he changed his name to that weird sign, the artist formerly known as Prince? <laughs> it's, gonna be, it's kind of like the social media for, platform formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> they say that in every article. Oh, do they? <laughs> what was he thinking? <laughs> X, they just call it X, and it's called X now. Something about no, I don't so <laughs> uh, He's, you know, he's a mixed bag, that, uh, that, that guy, Elon. <laughs> Anyway, any, any thoughts before I kind of wrap up? I think that is a perfect article. Oh, thank you. Is there any chance the Wall Street Journal would publish that? I thought about it. I, I was, you know, because I got some, some you know, the, particularly the editorial page is, is, is solid there. Um, but I thought, would they want to, like, criticize another part of the paper? In the, I, I just thought, well, I'll, so I, I'm giving first things a try. And they're pretty, they're another New York publication. And if they don't take it, maybe I'll try the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Anyway, um, well, we've come to the end of the time. And I know this has not been a normal Sunday school class, but I thought maybe some things I've been working on. You might wonder, what does he do all week? Well, I do stuff like that. <laughs> Write and read and argue with people who aren't in the room. <laughs> Anyway, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, again for a beautiful day. And we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to worship you as we should in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name, amen.